0: Happy Friday, everybody. It is The Informations 411, a podcast brought to you by TheInformation.com, a new site covering the tech industry and all industries being upended by the rise of technology. My name is Tom Doton. I'm a reporter here uh, with the team at The Information. Today we're looking at jobs and employment in tech, and we're doing it from two different angles, two different stories we've written in the last couple of weeks. First off, I'm talking to Wayne Ma, who is one of our reporters out in the Hong Kong Bureau. Who wrote about apple and robotics and how apple has tried to make robotics a thing in its manufacturing facilities and why it hasn't worked and for the second part of the show i'm speaking to kate clark who is our venture capital reporter out in san francisco about the paycheck protection program that is if you remember is the government program that Uh, gave loans to small businesses uh, in the wake of COVID to avoid larger layoffs at these businesses. And there were quite a few startups that took advantage of this program, which uh, was, one, interesting just because you don't see government kind of bailing out tech companies, uh, small tech companies uh, very often, but also there were some ethical questions raised about whether venture-backed companies that had raised millions of dollars from pretty deep-pocketed investors are the kinds of people the government should have been helping in in these kinds of programs. So for that story, I was speaking not only to Kate, but to Jonathan Wasserstrom, who is the CEO of Squarefoot, a real estate startup in New York, uh, and also one of the recipients of a PPP loan pretty stacked episode, if I do say so myself. Uh, So let's not draw this out any longer. Uh, Let's dive into the world of robotics with Wayne Ma. So Wayne, this story that you wrote looks at robotics and the promise that it it has for Apple. Why would Apple want robotics? What to them is the appeal of having more automated, robotic-driven manufacturing?
1: On the surface, you would think why they want to do more automation and robotics is just to reduce the number of people that it takes to assemble the iPhone uh, and some of their other products. Uh, the iPhone is probably one, you know one of the most intensive parts of the process. Um, probably you know anywhere between half a million to seven hundred thousand people in China, you know, are tasked with you know, assembling you know the phones and with robotics. You know, the idea is like maybe you can eliminate you know a lot of those people. You, know, you don't have to worry about, um, you know, wages, you know, regular wages. Obviously, you have the initial cost of buying the robot. But after that, you can kind of spread it out over over time. You spoke to
0: David Bourne, who is a professor of robotics at Carnegie Mellon. And uh, and we talked to him, too, here for this interview. And he was basically explaining that robotics um, are just not, surprisingly, even though there's a huge amount of precision in the making of robots, they're actually, when it comes to the fine-tuning aspects of, of putting tiny screws into phones, robotics are actually less precise than humans. And, and that's what David explained. Current screwdriver, automated screwdrivers, have a, something like a 99% success rate. This sounds great, by the way, 99% until you realize there's about 100 screws in each iPhone or, you know, basically there's a bad screw insertion in every iPhone or every other iPhone.
1: That's a disaster. This is one reason why, you know, humans might be better because, you know, humans don't completely go offline if they miss a screw. They'll they'll try to find other ways to put it in, you know, or they will... um, They'll they'll put it in in a in a way that maybe is isn't perfect. And a robot would stop the process, but you know, for the human, they'll you know it, it'll be jammed in. But maybe the average consumer won't notice this. Right.
0: Talked about how Apple was so serious about robotics that they built a secret lab in uh, in Cupertino, in California, to examine the possibilities of incorporating robotics into assembly. Uh, what was that about?
1: Around 2012, Apple purchased um, an unmarked office building in, in Sunnyvale. And they renovated it and they put all these secret labs into the building. And and one of them was this lab for the robotics and automation team. And so this lab, you know, maybe had a few dozen people, you know, attached to it. And they kind of experimented with all these kind of wild things like smart conveyor belts that could move parts back and forth and up and down with tiny elevators. Uh, But the team struggled. And, and one of the reasons is because it wasn't really attached to a specific project or product. And the way kind of Apple works is that those teams in the different product divisions tend to be working on, you know, real world issues that are going to be applied to very quickly, whereas this team was kind of floating around.
0: Right. And so that kind of points us towards the future, because your story kind of leaves open the possibility that even though technology isn't there yet right now, that doesn't mean it'll never get there. That you know, there's still a lot of work being done, at least outside of Apple, to try to get robotics to the point where they they can kind of do all these precise, you know, s- glue applications or or tiny screw insertions. Uh, that that's something that could happen down the line.
1: Right. So the uh, the idea is that maybe in a decade, you can use robots to do these things and you can replace people. But then the question is, should you? Because then you get into issues such as. Then you have don't then you don't have people around to kind of know what's going on. So if something breaks down, you know how will you fix it? And um, the, a lot of this institutional knowledge of of how to put together these you know devices or how to assemble these devices is kind of lost.
0: Right, and that's something that David got into a bit when when we talked was saying that at some point down the line humans will sort of lose the like you say, institutional knowledge or product knowledge to know how to put these things together, which when things go wrong, um, could cause bigger problems than than anything we had before that. At some point, we'll forget how to make things. And if people forget how to make things, this is kind of a one-way street to nowhere. Maybe we have a couple of years where we have some inexpensive products, sure. But at some point, we basically boxed ourselves in the corner Do you think, by the way, after going through this whole process, talking to robotics experts and former Apple uh, employees that were working on this, do you think any differently about the iPhone and how it's put together? I mean, did that change your perspective on, you know, all the specifics that go into putting one of these things together?
1: A decade ago, when I watched videos of, you know, the iPhone or the MacBook being put together at these Apple keynotes, they never show people putting it together. Introducing iPhone 11 Pro. If you notice, it's always robots uh, doing something. Uh, they show specific processes. It's sculpted from a single solid sheet. People are left with the impression that everything's kind of done through automation and robots already. And, uh, you know, when you actually go and talk to people and you actually, you know, you know, learn about this, you realize that that's definitely not the case, that Apple is just kind of picking and choosing certain parts of the process, you know, that don't have people to kind of sanitize things or, or, or make it look as if, um, you know, these things are assembled, you know, w- without, without, you know, all, all this human labor.
0: Right, no, it's an amazing kind of uh, almost cognitive dissonance that Apple wants people to think, at least, you know, the, the people that are buying their products, that robots are putting it together. But um, in many respects, they're so far away from it. All right, Wayne, this is super fascinating. Thank you so much for joining. No worries, thank you. So now we're turning to a different story, but one that also focuses on jobs and work in tech. This time, the role the government has played. Kate looked into a story about the Paycheck Protection Program, or PPP, a government loan aimed at small businesses that were affected by COVID-19. Some of those recipients were startups, which raised interesting ethical questions. Uh, So Kate, what role did the PPP play for startups?
2: So PPP gave startups enough money basically to pay their employees for two months. So on average, startups, secured like $260,000 that they ended up, you know, using um, actually for 24 weeks. The original program was just for eight, but they've since expanded it. And um, it helped startups in Silicon Valley and beyond um, prevent layoffs. Uh, it wasn't a whole lot of money, especially for venture capital-backed companies who, you know, pull in maybe $3 million, $5 million, $10 million at a time. But according to the founders that I spoke to, you know, it still made a really big difference in what was an incredibly uncertain time particularly march april when we were just really had no idea what the impact of this would be i think that it's a little more clear now though you know things are still certainly up in the air
0: from your perspective were you surprised after this program was announced that there were so many uh, startups that were taking advantage of this
2: right so it seemed like this was for, this was geared toward main street businesses mom and pop shops restaurants things like that so yes i was surprised by Um, there was a pretty immediate response from tech VC-backed startups who were interested in this program from the get-go and who used their resources to learn as much as they could about it. Um, There was a lot of confusion right away uh, whether a VC-backed startup could even get one of these loans. And as it turns out, they can. Um, There was never very much um, clear guidance around that. But after kind of weeks of going back and forth with venture capitalists debating each other and founders actually withdrawing their applications out of fear of backlash, um, you know, a lot of companies did get the loans and, you know, they've been using them. And like I said, putting that money toward payroll and rent and other costs like that.
0: Yeah, so one of the people that you talked to in your story and I also chatted with later was Jonathan Wasserstrom who's the CEO of Squarefoot, which is a uh, real estate company um, kind of in the vein of some of the uh, share workspaces and you know, he was uh, one of those companies that said that they lost um, quite a bit of business at the outset of the pandemic, which makes sense. No one was working in an office space Um, and for him. This was important. This was money that they needed to ensure that nobody got laid off. If the explicit goal of PPP for the government was to save jobs, I cannot describe a better situation than it doing that here now.
2: He believes that Business for Square Foot will pick up or is maybe already picking up now. He saw this loan, which his was $1 million, which is you know, sizable. Um, he saw that as an opportunity to make his way through the slump and not have to lean on investors who you know, probably wouldn't have written him a check even if he'd asked.
0: Right. So let's get into the, the kind of ethical debate about this all. Because like you said, this was not something that was intended for, uh, well, it would seem like it was geared more towards smaller businesses, certainly not ones like, like you know, Square Foot and others um, that have raised tens of millions of dollars over the years. So what was kind of the thinking among founders or VCs and others in the tech community about the, this particular program and its uh, a- application to their businesses?
2: I mean, you know, think back to March, April, companies were in incredibly desperate positions and needed needed capital from any source. So I think, you know, they kind of overlooked the ethics of it. But, you know, to your question, um, it seems that these loans were intended for mom-and-pop shops, main, main street businesses, small businesses, not tech companies backed by venture capital, but because it wasn't clear, it was kind of their own choice. Now, one of the people I interviewed, Roger Chen, in the story, he's a founder of a company called Computable. um. His parents own a restaurant um, outside of Boston, and they were applying for PPP. Um, and, you know, he said he frankly wasn't comfortable ethically applying. He, he he didn't think there was anything wrong with it for other companies, but for him personally, um, it was just not something where he felt right about it. And I think that was um, common across the valley, but there was just a lot of differences of opinions. And, you know, Sweet Green, which is a, which is a VC-backed um, salad chain, they had a $10 million PPP loan, I believe, and they actually returned it. Um, you know, They didn't say they were worried about getting in trouble necessarily, but I think it was clear just given the news cycle at the time that there was a lot, that, that some companies would be scrutinized and held accountable, whether that was public backlash or that was actual you know, charges from the government.
0: For Jonathan and and others that took the money, their contingency was that they were not allowed to lay people off. And so for them, this was a way for them to not only support the business, but ensure that their employees don't get pushed out during a pretty grim economic period. We did this not because we wanted to get a million dollars from the government and then fire everybody. right? The whole reason why we didn't want to fire people is that we've done a really good job of building a really strong team and you don't want to have to try and put Humpty Dumpty back together again. The other question that I have now is that we're not out of it. You know, there's a lot of, you know, news cycles being what they are. People are maybe not speaking in the same, you know, dire terms that people had been about uh, the state of the economy and the state of coronavirus. But the fact is that we are still under lockdown. I'm recording this you know, podcast in my closet. We could see another need for small businesses to get loans again. I mean, do you anticipate there will be more startups participating in it or, or maybe less?
2: It's only become more clear that the government is OK with giving loans to VC-backed companies because so many of them have received them. So I think, you know, knowing that it's okay, um, knowing that they're not auditing smaller loans, I, I imagine more will apply. But it really depends on how venture capitalists behave in the next six months or so. I mean, if they they have been slowing down, as, as many people have pointed out, they have not been writing as many checks uh, out of fear of, you know, they're not really, they're, they want to see who survives first before they invest. But as they pick up the pace a bit and start maybe doing deals at, at what has been the normal pace. Um, some companies may not need to you know, seek out a $300,000 loan when they could raise venture capital.
0: Totally. Um, all right, Kate, thank you so much for joining us. And um, we'll, I'm sure, be looking at what things develop in the next couple of weeks. All right, that is our episode. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, special thanks to Wayne Ma kate clark david born and jonathan wasserstrom for talking to me this week uh, and also a special thanks to our new producer on the informations 411 ariella markowitz uh, if you've noticed that the episodes are sounding a lot better these days that's all ariella's work uh, so so happy to have her aboard and have a good weekend see you next time